This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Um, so one of the questions that got me into philosophy was the question of um, why I think you can trust your religious beliefs given that there's so much disagreement about them and how easily you could have had different religious beliefs if you'd been raised in a different place um, or if your parents had um, taught you different things. So that's one of the ways that got me into philosophy. Um, but, oh, so I should tell you, I, I started as a biologist and as an undergrad. I studied biology, um, got my degree in biology at UC San Diego, uh, and I thought I was going to go to medical school or go get a PhD in biology. Um, but I had these sorts of nagging questions that I didn't, I didn't even know it was called philosophy at the time because I went to a university that did not advertise philosophy. It was not for philosophers. It was for um, STEM kids. Um, but I had a lot of philosophical questions, and so I thought I'll just go get that out of my system uh, at a two-year master's program and then go do the responsible thing and go to medical school. Um, but then instead of doing the responsible thing, I went to grad school in philosophy and got a PhD at the University of Texas. Um, yeah, and then pretty much since then I've been at Pepperdine. Um, I guess... I wanted to mention that because uh, this was actually one of the other, one of the few questions that dragged me into philosophy from biology. Um, so yeah, what happens is, uh, what happens to a lot of people is they don't know that philosophy is a thing, um, and so they start in other areas like mathematics or literature or biology or chemistry or something like that, but they start asking sort of fundamental questions about whatever field they're in, like what is biology or something like that, <laughs> um, or what does a text mean, or something like that. Um, and then by asking those foundational questions, they find soon enough that they're in philosophy. And so one of the questions that was bothering me when I was studying biology was, um, had to do with these laws of nature that I kept being asked to use in physics, in chemistry, in biology. There are all these natural regularities, these laws of nature, um, that, as, as you know, I mean, you use them a lot in the process of explaining phenomena scientifically. You want to know why a certain body of water is boiling at a certain time. And so what you do is you figure out, well, what was the volume and temperature and pressure of that water at a certain time? How much heat did I add? How much time has passed? Let me use my laws of thermodynamics. Now I can tell you why it's boiling now. Um, but something that bothered me was like, what? Isn't it strange that these laws exist at all and that they have the form that they do? Um, and I would ask, like my coworkers, I was working in labs a lot as an undergrad. I would try to start conversations about stuff like this, but nobody seemed interested in talking about it <laughs> um, until I found some philosophers, and then they were interested in talking about it. So it was only very recently that I um, finally got around to actually publishing this. I think this is the longest stretch from when something started bothering me to when I finally published a paper on it. And I guess the, that span was, gosh, probably like 17 years or something. So that's, uh, that's hard to say out loud, but <laughs> that's what happened. Um, so yeah, what I want to try to do today is um, tell you about this argument and why I think there's a kind of tension um, between atheism, a sort of atheistic, naturalistic view of the world, and scientific explanation. And so um, I'll probably go back and forth between um, talking about atheism and talking about naturalism, but I guess I should say that they're a little bit different. So atheism is just a view that there is no God. But when I say naturalism, I mean something a little bit stronger than that. Naturalism is the view that there is no God or anything like God. 
nothing supernatural. Um, of course, that's not a very helpful definition to say that naturalism is the view that there's no, nothing supernatural, um, but it's a little bit more helpful to say there's no God or anything like God. So no angels, no demons, no life after death, no souls, um, nothing like that. Typically, naturalists believe that, um, as an ancient naturalist said, all that exists is just atoms and the void, which is pretty cool. Um, well, I guess it wouldn't be cool if it were true, but uh, it's cool to think about <laughs> just atoms in the void. That's how Democritus put it um, way back in the day. So naturalists tend to think that everything that exists is just made up of little fundamental physical particles. Um, there's nothing that exists that isn't made up out of those little fundamental physical particles. Um, okay, so that's what I mean by naturalism. So as I said, I think there's a tension between naturalism and scientific explanation, which would be kind of surprising and ironic because usually naturalists are very pro-science and they love science. And if you ask them, why are you a naturalist? They'll say, because of science, of course. So um, that's why I thought this was an interesting argument um, because what I'm going to try to argue is the, op the opposite's true. Um, there is actually a tension between atheism, between naturalism and scientific explanation. Um, so I'll just briefly tell you this is a very old argument. <clears throat> Maybe you're familiar with the idea that, um, according to Aristotle, I've been told that philosophy is not required here. Is that true at Mississippi State? Has anyone taken a philosophy course? Oh, okay, some people. Okay, but most people haven't. So uh, maybe I'll tell you a little bit um, about this. There was once a philosopher named Aristotle. Did you know that? <laughs> nice. Um, and he thought that if you want to explain any natural phenomenon, he was doing a kind of proto-science, and he thought part of the job of um, a true philosopher is to explain natural phenomena. And he thought for any natural phenomenon, if you wanted to fully explain it, you'd have to cite four what are often called causes. Um, four bits of information in order to get a complete explanation of some natural phenomenon. So you'd have to tell us, for example, um, here's a famous example that a lot of people use if you came, for example, across a statue in a city center. Oh, we just did that on campus. I got a little tour. And there was a statue outside the chapel of an angel holding nothing. Okay. Um, and we were wondering, what is the, <laughs> what's the angel waiting for? Um, so according to Aristotle, if you wanted to explain something like that, you'd have to cite four things. You'd have to cite a material cause. So you'd want to know what it's made out of, what kind of matter it's made out of. Um, you'd have to cite an efficient cause, where it came from or who made it, um, what sort of artisan sculpted it. Um, you'd think uh, you'd have to cite also a formal cause. So in the case of a statue, like what is this? What is it a statue of? I guess in that case, it was an angel holding nothing. Um, but Aristotle also thought, and this is the most controversial bit, um, you would have to also cite what he called a final cause. Um, so he thought for a complete explanation of a natural phenomenon, you should also cite what it's for, or what it's meant to do, what it's aimed at. So for Aristotle, nature was fundamentally intentional and aimed at certain things. There were purposes all over the place. Um, Lots of things, everything, every natural phenomenon had some sort of goal or purpose, something it was trying to do. Um, he thought that the elements were like this. So, for example, he thought that Earth was an element and it had a natural tendency to go to the center of the universe. That's what Earth wanted to do. He thought there was a center of the universe. It sounds kind of quaint. Uh, it's not true, um, but I think it's a very cute and charming view. And I think it could be updated. 
um, so that it is true. But anyway, back in his day, he thought Earth was an element and it was sort of striving to get to the center of the universe. And so that's why if you let it go, it just goes, <laughs> it like wants to do that. And then water was an element and its natural place was on top of the Earth. And then air was an element and its natural place was on top of the water. You can see how this is an appealing view. It like, seems to confirm or conform with our experience. Um, and then fire, for some reason, he thought was on top of the air. That's where fire wanted to go. I guess because when you light things on fire, actually, I saw a, a truck on fire today as I drove into Starkville. <laughs> and, um, and the flames were, you know, sort of reaching up into the sky. And so maybe that's why Aristotle thought that fire's natural place was um, above the air. That's what I was trying to do. Okay, and then uh, I don't know why I'm giving you a tour of the elements on Aristotle's view, but uh, there's also ether, and that was up in the heavens outside the orbit of the moon. Um, from the dark side of the moon out, everything was made out of ether. And its natural motion was circular, and so that's why the heavenly bodies are all perfectly spherical, he thought, and all their movements are perfectly circular, he thought. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, again, you, you didn't need to know stuff about the elements, but I did want to mention that he thought that um, all of nature was sort of suffused with these final causes, this um, teleology. Um, he thought everything had a telos or a goal. Um, and ultimately, the goal of everything is to try to become as much like the prime mover as it can, given its limited nature. That's what everything is trying to do for Aristotle, to become as much like the prime mover as it can. And the prime mover is often equated to God on Aristotle's view. Okay, so that's what everything's striving to do. Um, so that was Aristotle's view, and um, maybe you've heard, or you were told, or you've just sort of um, imbibed in our culture uh, the idea that this was all refuted during the scientific revolution or something. We, all, we learned that this is all false. There are no final causes in nature. Uh, we're definitely fine with the efficient causes and the material causes. Hooray for those. Formal causes, not so sure about those. Final causes, definitely not. Um, that's the common story. But Aristotle was aware of people like this, even in his own day. <clears throat> he was aware of um, opponents, contemporaries of his, and predecessors of his, who thought that, um, on the contrary, everything in nature could be explained just in terms of chance and necessity, combinations of chance and necessity. And there is no need for final causes. You don't have to appeal to goals or ends or purposes in order to explain everything in nature. Uh, and so in his book, The Physics, he has a little response to, Aristotle has a response to one of these opponents, Empedocles, um, who champions that sort of view, that everything can be explained in terms of chance and necessity. So here's an, ex here's an example of how that might go. Oh, you want to know why it's raining, Aristotle? Empedocles says. Here's why it's raining. Um, water heats up from the sun, and heated water must rise. And then when it goes up, it's cooler up there. They knew all this back then. And uh, what goes up must cool. And cooled water must fall. They knew all this. Um, so notice how we're appealing to regularities. When water's heated, it rises. That regularly happens. That's one of these um, laws of nature or necessities of nature. When it goes up into the heavens, it cools. And when it cools, it falls. And if it happens to help the crops... Um, that would just be by chance. So the rain definitely isn't falling for the sake of the crops. There's no goal or end or purpose with the rain. If it helps the crops, that's just a fortunate coincidence. Um, but 
we don't need to appeal to any sort of goal or purpose for the rain in order to explain the water cycle. That's one example. Um, another example, which is kind of interesting, um, there is a sort of proto-Darwinism going on even in Aristotle's own day, and Empedocles was a champion of that as well. Um, so Empedocles thought, here's how we could explain the sort of diversity of life that we observe. Living things arrange themselves with some degree of chance. There's sort of a reshuffling every time you get a little baby of whatever sort of organism uh, we're looking at. So there's some chance involved in the origination of species. And then Empedocles thought some of these will be more fit for the environment and some will be less fit. And the more fit will survive and pass on their traits and the less fit uh, won't. That's pretty interesting, even way back then. This view was around. Okay, but notice we're just explaining everything. We're explaining the diversity of life just in terms of chance and necessity. So this, isn't, this process isn't happening for some goal or end. It's not striving for anything. It's not aimed at anything. There's no design or purpose or anything like that. It's just chance and necessity. Okay, so I'll briefly tell you about Aristotle's response. Aristotle pointed out that even if you could explain all of this sort of stuff, like the water cycle and uh, the diversity of life that we observe around us, something very important would be left unexplained on this view. He thought, here's a natural phenomenon that you can't explain, namely the natural regularities themselves. Why is it that when water's heated, it rises? Why is it that when it goes up, it cools, and when it cools, it falls, and so on? Why do these sorts of things happen so regularly? And now what's interesting is um, he thought his view could explain the natural regularities, but the Empedoclean view leaves them unexplained. The Empedoclean view is using the, nece the necessities to explain everything else. We're using chance and necessity to explain everything else. And so when you ask the Empedoclean, well, what about these necessities? How do you explain those? Um, the Empedoclean has nothing left to appeal to. You can't say chance because things don't happen regularly by chance. Okay, that was Aristotle's point. Like, you can't try to use chance to explain these um, because it's not by chance. It's a regularity. It keeps happening. That's not chance. Okay, whereas Aristotle thought, hey, I, Aristotle, can explain those natural regularities by appealing to these final causes. Here's why um, this regularly happens uh, for the sake of the good, ultimately. Okay, so that's what Aristotle said. Um, back in his own day, but uh, what I'm going to try to convince you of is I think Aristotle actually underplayed his hand. It's not just that his view has an advantage over the Empedoclean view. It's not the case that the Empedoclean view can explain a lot, but not everything. That seemed to be Aristotle's position. You might explain a lot, but you can't explain everything. Um, I think it's even worse for the Empedoclean. I think the Empedoclean can't explain anything, ultimately. Okay, so that's what I'm going to try to convince you of. Um, so these days, we don't use the phrase um, natural regularity so often. These days, we often talk of laws of nature. Um, but as far as I can tell, in every theory of how scientific explanation works, and there are several, um, everybody agrees that laws of nature are going to play a crucial role in scientific explanation. So I will give you um, a sort of basic theory about how scientific explanation works. Um, there are complications and troubling sorts of cases, um, but all that I need for my purposes is the claim that however scientific explanation works, it works by using laws of nature, these natural regularities. 
So here's a sort of simple view of how scientific explanation works. We start with initial conditions, we combine them with laws of nature, and those two things together entail, in the form of like a deductive argument, they entail the phenomenon that we want to explain. So the laws of nature, you can think of them as having forms of conditionals, like if this is happening, then this will happen soon after. So I gave you an example already if you were wondering like why the water is boiling. Um, you could use those laws of thermodynamics as something like conditionals. Um, you know that if the water has this volume and this pressure and this temperature, et cetera, then, and you, and you add this much heat, and the substance has this specific heat or whatever. I don't know. It's been a while since I did chemistry. Oh, but I learned you all did chemistry. Is that right? So you know. Oh, so I should be careful. Let me know if I say anything false. Um, so we use those laws as sort of like conditionals, and in the antecedent of that conditional, in the if part of the conditional, are the initial conditions. So the conditional says something like, if these conditions are met, then here's what's going to happen next. And then the initial conditions tell us, oh, those conditions were met. That is what was happening. And then the conditional says, oh, okay, here's what to expect next. And so you might think that's sort of the um, whole job of science. That's sort of the, the glory of science, is uncovering these rules, these laws that help us understand, allegedly, how um, states of the universe evolve from one to the next. So we know that if things are in this sort of state, here's what the laws tell us. Here's what's coming next. We could also go backwards, too. If things are in this state, here's how they must have been before. That's the idea. Okay, but again, my point is just laws of nature are going to play a crucial role in scientific explanation. Um, so yeah, let me, let me tell you why this bothers me, and then I will introduce you to the most controversial premise in the argument. Okay, so here's why it bothered me um, back when I was doing some science. Um, I remember I ran across a quotation from an astrophysicist, Alan Guth, who was talking about design arguments. He's, he's an atheist, and he was giving a response to kind of design arguments um, for God's existence. And he said something like, you know, I'll freely admit that I don't know why the laws of physics are the way that they are. And then this is the part that like, caught my attention. He said, and furthermore, I don't even know how to go about approaching that question. And I was like, it's <laughs> a weird thing. It's a weird thing for a scientist to say. Um, given how crucial these laws of nature are in the whole scientific enterprise, it's strange to say, like, yeah, you know, I admit I don't know why they are the way they are. I'd heard that a million times. Yeah, I don't know why these are the way that they are. But what was interesting to me is he went further and said, I don't even know how to go about approaching that question. Um, so that caught my attention, and that made me think there is something really deeply mysterious and important about these laws of nature. And I think the idea, in a nutshell, is something like this. It's, it's the problem that Aristotle proposed to the Empedoclean, if you're trying to use initial conditions and laws of nature to explain natural phenomena, you're like, why, why, is, why, is, why is the temperature such and such in this room right now? Laws of nature, initial conditions. Why is Mars in the position that it is right now? Laws of nature, initial conditions. If you then ask the naturalist who's explaining everything just with laws of nature and initial conditions, what's up with these laws of nature? How do you explain them? Why are, the way that they, why are they the way that they are? You can see that they don't have the resources to explain it. There's like nothing left to use to explain these. These are what we use to explain everything else. Does that make sense? So when, when I ask for an explanation of these, there's nothing left to explain. Are you going to use the initial conditions or something like that? There's nothing left to explain these.
And so that bothered me. And then I thought, um, it seems that this whole scientific enterprise is uh, resting on shaky foundations. And it reminded me of uh, maybe a story you've heard of, um, I think this is just a, I don't know if anybody actually believed this, um, but hypothetically imagine a, uh, a more, an earlier time, a more primitive culture that thought the earth was flat. Um, I guess some people still believe that. Is that still a thing? Or? It's still a thing. It's still a thing. Um, so imagine you meet a flat earther who thinks, yeah, the earth is flat. Um, here's a question that naturally arises on that, on that theory. Why is the earth so stable? Why isn't it spinning or kind of wobbling or like falling or rising? Um, why is the earth so stable? Um, I think they actually have it. Well, one, one explanation I've heard from the flat earthers is it's like constantly accelerating. And so we feel that as gravity. <laughs> so it's, it's not just constant in velocity. It's like constantly accelerating. It's like going faster and faster all the time, <laughs> which is pretty wild. Um, but here's another possibility. Imagine somebody says, Oh, here's why the Earth is, um, here's the explanation of why the Earth is so stable. Uh, it's being held up by some really powerful elephants. If you're like me, you'll think, well, this isn't totally satisfying because now I'm just wondering about these elephants, right? Well, first of all, where did they come from and how they get so big? But also, why are they so stable? You know, what are they standing on? What's holding them up? And you can imagine this kind of explanation continuing, this proposed explanation continuing and saying, uh, well, the elephants are being held up by a turtle. But again, I think we're just sort of delaying explanation. Like, I'm still wondering, why is this whole structure stable? Um, what's holding the turtle up? And then I've heard that um, some people say, well, the turtle swims in a sea of chaos or something like that. <laughs> That's why it's a swimming turtle. That's why it's a sea turtle. Um, but then you wonder, like, where did the sea of chaos come from? Why is it there? And why is it stable? Um, and you can see how this question would, could could just continue. And we have not arrived at a satisfying explanation. So here's my suggestion to you. <clears throat> we have not received an explanation of why the Earth is so stable. Adding the elephants and adding the turtle didn't explain the stability of the Earth. But that's a little bit controversial. I'm trying to just ease you into it. Um, when I say a little bit controversial, this is the most controversial bit of the argument. So I'm just going to try to just slip it past you. <laughs> just kidding. We're actually going to think about it in excruciating detail. Um, but yeah, let me just back up a little bit. It's tempting to think at this point, OK, now I know why the Earth is stable. But here's another question. Why are the elephants stable? That's one response you might have to this. But the response that I want to defend and suggest to you is, when these elephants are proposed and then we're asked, oh, do we now understand why the Earth is stable? I think the right answer is, well, it depends. Do the elephants have an explanation? Can I understand why the elephants are stable? I have a kind of conditional explanation here, like if these elephants have an explanation, then I could see how they could hold up the Earth, sure. But if the elephants don't have an explanation, then I don't really understand why the Earth is so stable. And then the same thing happens here. Do I now have an explanation of why the elephants are stable? Well, it depends on whether this turtle has an explanation. Do I understand why that turtle is stable? What's holding it up? If not, then I don't really understand the elephants, in which case I don't really understand why the Earth is stable. That's what I want to suggest to you. 
Here are some more examples. Um, when my daughter was younger, uh, she was, I think, like four years old or something, um, she sneezed, and I said, God bless you, like a good father. Um, but she was old enough to wonder, uh, I think that was the first time it had ever happened to her that somebody said, God bless you. So maybe she wasn't four, maybe she was three. Um, I don't know. I just don't want you to think this is one of those Twitter things where people make up things that their kids <laughs> said. <laughs> this really happened. <laughs> so. I don't remember like, how much she was thinking about the world when she was three, but around that age, I said, God bless you to her, and it was the first time anybody had ever said that. Um, and she looked at me with like, a puzzled expression, like, what, why did you, and she asked, why did you say God bless you to me? And you know, we were eating dinner, and I was really hungry, so I didn't really want to have a conversation, and I'm introverted. Um, <laughs> so I just said, you know, we always say that when people sneeze. We always say that when people sneeze. Which isn't strictly true. It's not strictly true. We don't always say that, but um, we often say it. Right? Um, but then I like, thought that would put an end to the matter. But then her eyes got really wide, and she was like, why do we always do that? <laughs> and, you, and then I understood, like, oh, I didn't really help her. I didn't, I didn't demystify the situation. Um, I actually made things worse for her. Things are more mysterious now than they were before. Because she started out with just one phenomenon that she wanted to explain. Like, why did you say God bless you on this occasion? And now what I did for her was I multiplied the occasions. I said, like, oh, don't worry about that one. It always happens. <laughs> and then she's just like, oh, no, now I have so much more to explain, you know? Um, now, there is an explanation of why we say that, I guess. I, I've, I've heard rival explanations. We don't have to get into it. Um, but here's what I'm going to suggest to you. If this really were the end of the story, it would be like that turtle situation. Where I was like, oh, you're wondering why I said God bless you? that's held up, so to speak, or the explanation of that is, we always say it. If there were no further explanation of why we always say that, if there were no further explanation of that sneeze law, you might call it, um, then my daughter would not have been in a position to understand why I said to her, God bless you. Okay, here's another, this one, this one's totally um, fanciful, this never happened. <clears throat> but imagine, like, I move to a new neighborhood, and I wake up um, one Wednesday or something, and there's an orange on my doorstep, just carefully placed right there on the doorstep. And I wonder, why is there an orange on my doorstep? Um, and so I ask my new neighbors, did you get an orange on your doorstep? Uh, why, why was there an orange on my doorstep? Oh, and it turns out that um, this, I guess this really did happen once in Rome, but it didn't happen to me. <laughs> but this was like a news story. Mystery orange appears on a, Roman, on a Rome doorstep late at night. Why, they wonder. That's a good question, right? Why? And that's what you would wonder if an orange showed up on your doorstep. Okay, um, but imagine the neighbor tells me something like this. So that's one possible proposed explanation. But suppose the neighbors say, oh, that always happens on Wednesdays. And then they you know, close the door. Can you see how that doesn't demystify things for me? That makes things more mysterious. That's like the sneeze law. They've cited something like a law, a regularity. That regularly happens. Every Wednesday in this neighborhood, there's an orange on everybody's doorstep. So I'm trying to explain this natural phenomenon, and what I'm getting as an explanation is like a law. And I get some initial conditions, like, hey, it's a Wednesday. Every Wednesday you get an orange. There you go. <laughs> satisfied? <laughs> well, no, I'm not really satisfied with that explanation. If there were no for further explanation of this, then I would conclude I live in a very mysterious neighborhood, right? Like, just deeply irredeemably mysterious. Every Wednesday we get these oranges and nobody knows why. Can you, can you kind of see where I'm going with this? Okay, yeah, you can see where I'm going. Okay, um, 
So the general principle here, and this is the most controversial premise in the argument, one premise so far was just uh, laws of nature figure crucially into scientific explanation. I don't think that one's very controversial. This is the controversial one. If some facts or something that's being proposed as an explanation, if something, call it A, if that calls out for explanation but doesn't have one, then you can't use it to explain anything else. That's what the general principle says. What do I mean for call, what do I mean by calls out for explanation? I mean something like it could be explained. It's the kind of thing that could be explained. Um, and it would be better if we had an explanation of it. That's basically what I mean. So it calls out for explanation. It's the kind of thing that could be explained and we would like an explanation of it. It would be better if we could explain it. So I think some things do not call out for explanation, like basic mathematical truths, like one plus one is two. Although maybe you've seen, have you seen Bertrand Russell's infamous proof that one plus one is two? It's like, that's super complicated. Um, I think two plus two is four would be another example, and one plus one is two would be a good example of things that don't really call out for explanation, at least past a certain point of development. Maybe when you're very young and you're told it for the first time, you're like, why? Um, but once you grasp the proposition, once you understand what's being said, you realize, oh yeah, that's got to be true. Um, so things like that don't call out for explanation. They don't need any further explanation. Um, but other things like oranges on your doorstep and people saying God bless you when you sneeze, um, these are the sorts of things that call out for explanation. They could be explained. And so what this principle says is if there's something like that that calls out for explanation but literally has none, then you can't use that to explain anything else. And so I, you might have noticed I emphasized that it literally has none. It's not just that we don't know what the explanation is, but there is one out there. Rather, I'm imagining a case where there is literally no explanation. So take the flat earth example again. You can imagine like we're doing a primitive science and we look over the edge of the earth and we're like, oh, elephants. And then somebody clambers down the elephants and they're like, oh, a big turtle. And then we wonder, what's the turtle resting on? And you can imagine a situation where we're just not in a position to know yet because we haven't yet climbed down and looked. So that would be a case where maybe the turtle has an explanation, but we just don't know it yet. But no, what, what I mean here in this principle is um, a situation where there's literally no explanation. So we look over the edge of the turtle and there's nothing. So there's literally no explanation of how this turtle is being held up. Okay, so what this general principle says is if that's happening, then you can't use this fact to explain anything else. And so you can see how that would work with the sneeze law and the orange law and the sea turtle holding up the elephants and the elephants holding up the earth. Okay, so I hope you're ready to sign on to that premise. Because if you are, it's a pretty short little ride to the conclusion. Are, are you going to raise an objection or is this a clarificatory question? Okay, yes. So like in the case of the orange, yeah. like, there could be an explanation, but we don't know it yet. So does that still fall in this then? Okay, so you would ask, I'm just going to repeat it for this recording. Um, so you'd ask, in the case of the orange, um, so in the case where I'm told, like, well, every Wednesday, everybody in this neighborhood gets oranges. So that is the sort of thing that could have an explanation. Like maybe there's somebody who owns an orange grove in my neighborhood, and they're just generous. And so every Wednesday, it's like, the, like a newspaper boy, you know. Here's your orange. Here's your orange. Um, yeah, that could happen, and then we'd have an explanation. Um, but in order for this, yeah, wouldn't, this principle would not apply to that case then, because in that case, um, 
if that's what's happening, then uh, the orange law, the fact that in this neighborhood we get oranges every Wednesday, does have a further explanation. But yeah, what I want you to imagine is, um, now imagine in this neighborhood I move in and there's the orange and then I'm told that happens every Wednesday and then I ask why and they say, what do you mean why? <laughs> there's literally no explanation. It just happens. It just happens. Um, then I think, like, wow, I live in a very mysterious um, neighborhood that I just cannot understand. I cannot understand why there's an orange on my doorstep every Wednesday. It's not the sort of thing that could be understood. Okay, that's when the principle would kick in. <clears throat> Okay, um, so if you're ready to sign on to that and you don't have any objections, great. But um, so uh, I, I, I do what's called analytic philosophy. Have you heard of this analytic continental distinction? It's not a big deal, but analytic philosophers have um, a kind of reputation for being uh, over, overly interested in clarity and rigor, and we have a hard time burying the lead or making things suspenseful or... Um, yeah, so I'm just going to tell you, here's some objections. These are the best objections I've heard. Um, so I'm just going to give you the best objections I've heard to my own principle. That's what I'm about to do, which is kind of, <laughs> that's kind of weird. But that's what we do. Um, but then I'm going to try to tell you why I think the objections don't work. Okay. So there's the principle at the top. If A calls out for explanation but has none, then A cannot explain B. Are these counterexamples? So I've run this, this um, argument by some people, and these are some counterexamples that I've gotten. Somebody once suggested to me, as a counterexample, suppose a full-grown pregnant mare appears before you from nothing with literally no explanation, and then the mare foals a colt. That's my best attempt to sound like somebody who knows anything about horses. The mare foals a colt. Um, surely you can successfully explain the origin of the cult in terms of the pregnant mare, even if the pregnant mare herself has no explanation yet calls out for one. Okay, so this pregnant mare emerges out of nothing, just materializes out of nothing for literally no reason. It's not just that we don't know the reason, literally no reason. But out pops a cult. Um, can't we, don't we understand the origin of the cult, like why the cult is here? Yeah, we just saw it come out of the mare, right? So I do understand at least the cult. I don't understand the mare, but I understand the colt, you might have thought. But if that's true, then isn't this a case where something calls out for explanation but has none, the pregnant mare? The pregnant mare does call out for explanation but has none. And yet I can use the pregnant mare to explain the colt. The pregnant mare helps me understand where this colt came from. Okay, here's another example that's kind of similar. Um, or suppose a meal appears before you from nothing with no explanation. You eat it, satisfying your hunger. Surely now you can successfully explain your satiety by reference to the meal you ate, even if that meal has no explanation yet calls out for one. So, um, so as I said, it's my first time in Mississippi. I haven't spent much time in the South, but last night I found a, a local diner near my um, hotel. Uh, it's called the Waffle House. <laughs> Have you? You've heard of it? Yeah. So what I ate with a little bit of a trepidation, but uh, everything turned out okay. Uh, maybe it's still too early to tell, but um, it was, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's all right. um, okay, so anyway, so this meal pops out of nothing, and then you eat it. Can't I explain why I'm full now, um, why I'm not hungry anymore, even though the meal itself is totally mysterious? Okay, these are proposed counterexamples. Uh, let me give you my best response. And then if you want to bring up some other counterexamples in the Q&A, you can. 
Okay, so here's my response. Um, in each of these cases, I say, there is a part of the proposed explanation that cannot be understood. In the first case, it's that pregnant mare. In the second case, it's the meal. But I think that if there's part of a proposed explanation that cannot be understood, then that proposed explanation cannot produce in us understanding of why or how the phenomenon is happening. At least not complete understanding. It's not a successful explanation. But if you think that's a condition on a successful explanation that it produce in us understanding of the phenomenon and understanding of why or how it's happening, then in neither case do we actually have a successful explanation. It's sort of like this. Um, this is a puzzle with some pieces missing. But given your knowledge of the world, you can kind of see what this is a picture of. You sort of fill in the blanks, as it were. So I think what's happening in this case is because um, the cases involve things that we're kind of familiar with, like birth and eating, then we're tempted to sort of assimilate these cases with other cases that we're familiar with. And that's what explains the attraction of these cases, to say like, oh yeah, in this case, I understand where the cult came from, or I understand why I'm not hungry anymore. It's because we're tempted to think of them like ordinary cases of birth and eating. Um, but I think what's actually happening, if you pay closer attention, is these unintelligible explainers, the things that are proposed to explain the phenomenon, the cult or the satiety, they're unintelligible, they're totally mysterious. And so what's really happening is they create mysterious gaps or holes in the respective proposed explanations. So it's like that puzzle with the missing pieces. There are these holes in the explanation. It's not a complete explanation. So it doesn't actually help us understand the cult or the lack of hunger. And again, what's happening is our minds are disposed to fill in those gaps so as to resemble ordinary cases, cases that we're familiar with. Just like how our minds fill in the blind spots in our visual fields created by our optic nerves, you know what I'm talking about? Um, so our minds literally like construct, probably not confabulate, construct, like sort of fill in the blind spot created by our optic nerve. I think that's happening in these sorts of cases. Our minds kind of abhor a vacuum when it comes to explanation, and so they just sort of cover it up. And they're like, well, you know about birth. You know about eating. Um, so this is just like those other cases. Don't worry about it. But in less ordinary cases, like the doorstep orange case, or something even more alien, I think we better appreciate the mystery. Um, so imagine a case like this, where it's not a pregnant mare that shows up, and then out pops a colt. We're kind of familiar with that. Imagine it's just like a weird, mysterious, flashing sphere that shows up from another dimension or something. Or no, we don't, there's no explanation at all. It's even worse than from another dimension. It's from nothing. <laughs> and then whoop, opens up and then out pops a little alien. Do we understand, like, do we understand this alien? Because <laughs> we're like, oh, no mystery there. He came out of the sphere. You know? <laughs> um, no, I think like the, the alien remains mysterious. And the fact that it's like a weird alien sphere helps us see the mystery. But that's just like the mare case and the cult case. You've got a mare with a cult inside, out pops the cult. I don't think we understand where the cult came from. Um, we sort of see that it moved, switched location from like inside the mare to outside, but still, it's totally mysterious how this cult got here. Um, so that's what I say about these sorts of cases. All right, so there's just one final thing to say, um, and that's to tell you how this applies to the case at hand. 
So there's the general principle again. If A calls out for explanation but has one, but has none, then you can't use it to explain anything else. And you can see how um, if we just swap in laws of nature uh, in there, um, then if it's really the case that laws of nature call out for explanation but have none, uh, we're going to be in serious trouble. Scientific explanation is going to be in serious trouble. If scientific explanation requires laws of nature and any successful explanation requires that all the crucial elements in that explanation have an explanation, well, then if laws of nature are the sorts of things that need an explanation but don't have one, then scientific explanation is not going to work. It's going to be just like the turtle case. It's going to be like the sneeze law case. It's going to be like the orange law case. Okay, so just really briefly, why think that laws of nature call out for explanation? Um, well, here's an example. Um, this is that universal law of gravitation. Um, I guess it breaks, there are some exceptions, so this isn't a true fundamental law of nature. Um, but what I say about this regularity will apply to whatever the true fundamental laws of nature turn out to be. Um, so this works most of the time for most of our purposes. If you want to know the force with which two massive bodies are attracting each other, here's what you do. Multiply their masses together, divide by the square of the distance between them, and then take that and multiply it by the gravitational constant. Oh, what's the gravitational constant, you ask? This mess. <laughs> so there's a lot um, that stands in need of explanation here. There's a lot you could ask about. There's a lot that calls out for explanation. Like, why do we multiply the masses together? Why not just add them? You can, there could be a universe in which that's the law. You add the masses. Um, or maybe there's a, I mean, it could have turned out that gravity works this way. You multiply the masses, but then square it. Why do we divide by the square of the distance between them? Why not the cube? Or why not just the distance between them? And most of all, why does the gravitational constant have exactly this value and not slightly more or slightly less? or way more, or way less. So this sort of law is like the orange law. It's like the sneeze law. It's contingent. It could have been different in many ways. Um, so it's the sort of thing that could be explained. We would like to know, why does it have this form rather than some other form? And so if we're told that there literally is no explanation, then a scientific explanation is not going to work. Okay, so now I've tried to convince you that this general principle is true. Now we're applying it to laws of nature. I just tried to convince you that laws of nature call out for explanation. Last piece of the puzzle, and then I'll stop. Why think that if atheism is true, laws of nature have no explanation? Uh, here's why. It's the same structure of explanation, right? We're like saying, oh, here's what explains the earth. Elephants on a turtle. Oh, here's what explains scientific Phenomena, laws of nature, initial conditions. But these things need to be explained, especially the laws of nature. Okay, so why think there is no explanation of uh, laws of nature on naturalism or atheism? So I think there's a couple ways that naturalists tend to go. Um, so if we ask a naturalist about some natural regularity, some law, um, one possibility is that the law that we ask the naturalist about is truly fundamental. And so maybe it's an actual like fundamental law of physics. And we ask the naturalist, what's the explanation of this law? Why is this, why is this law this way rather than some other way? And it could be that the naturalist says, well, what you've presented me with here is a truly fundamental law. There is no explanation. So I think we can all agree if that happens, 
then we don't understand the law. It's just like the flat earth, we're wondering why is it stable, and we're told it's the end of the story. There is no explanation. But other times, when you ask a naturalist about laws of nature, the laws that you ask about might not be truly fundamental. So maybe you ask about some regularity in biology. And they say, oh, well, here's what explains why that's happening in biology. This more fundamental law from molecular biology or from chemistry or something like that. And then when you ask, well, what explains that law? They say, oh, I've got an explanation for you. It's a deeper law. But eventually, this structure terminates with a truly fundamental law the truly fundamental laws of physics. And then again, when you ask, well, what explains that law? It's truly brute. When philosophers say brute, they mean no explanation. Okay, so does this structure remind you of anything? That's right, it's the Waffle House. No, it's the, it's the turtle again, right? It has that same structure. I'm wondering, well, why is, what explains this regularity? Oh, it's a deeper regularity. What explains a deeper regularity? Oh, a deeper regularity still. But then we hit a final regularity, and we say, oh, that's the end of the story. No explanation for that. So if you liked that uh, controversial premise that said, um, if A calls out for explanation but doesn't have one, then it can't explain anything else. Well, it applies here too. The mysteriousness of this fundamental law infects the whole structure. And so nothing in this structure is explained. It's just like the turtle case. So no laws in this structure end up having an explanation. And so any laws that we end up using when we do our scientific explanation, if that really is the end of the story, um, none of the laws can be understood. They're all mysterious. And so none of our scientific explanations will succeed. OK, and I think this is a common view among naturalists. Here's some quotations. Um, here's one from Sean Carroll. Uh, recently at Caltech, but I think he just moved to Johns Hopkins. Is that right? Anybody know? Doesn't matter. Astrophysicist, um, raised Catholic, not Catholic anymore, but his Catholic upbringing gave him, gave him an interest and appreciation for philosophy, which is um, not super common among physicists. So that's nice about Sean Carroll. Um, he says, uh, describing his naturalistic view of the world, he says, granted, it's always nice to be able to provide reasons why something is the case. Most scientists, however, suspect, suspect that the search for ultimate explanations eventually terminates in some final theory of the world, along with the phrase, and that's just how it is. Right? That's the structure. That's this. That's the turtle. Okay, um, Bertrand Russell said something similar. He was a famous atheist from the last century. He was born in the late 1800s. He said, I do think the notion of the world having an explanation is a mistake. So even for Bertrand Russell, there will be some things like reality itself, where if you ask why is reality the way that it is, no explanation. Um, and there's that quotation from Alan Guth that I shared earlier. Um, he says, I don't know why the laws of nature, why the laws of physics are what they are. And I have no idea how to go about approaching that question. Okay, so I think for Alan Guth as well, if you asked him about these fundamental laws, he said, can you explain these? I think the reason he says, I don't know how to even approach that question is because there's nothing left. There's no more fundamental laws by hypothesis. This is it, we hit the bottom. There's nothing, that we have no more resources with which to explain these fundamental laws. We're done. Okay, so um, why are things better for the theist? 
Um, so I think there's another possible structure of scientific explanation that looks like this. Um, I call it teleological foundationalism as a callback to that Aristotle stuff we were talking about earlier. So Aristotle, remember, thought that the universe was kind of suffused with design or purpose or intention or goal-orientedness. So it could be that things are like this. We explain some higher-level laws in terms of more fundamental laws and those in terms of the most fundamental laws. Using a little subscript F for like final or fundamental or foundational. But then those truly fundamental laws of nature, they don't have any further scientific explanation, but they do have a deeper explanation in terms of the goals or intentions or purposes of God. Yeah. Um, so you could follow Plato and say something like this. Oh, shoot. Aristotle came first. Okay, we'll get to Plato in a second. And I don't mean chronologically. I should have put Plato first because Plato did. He was, yeah. This is super embarrassing. Okay, so uh, let's start with Aristotle, though, because um, this is a Catholic event. There it is. Uh, so following Aristotle, we may immediately explain the fundamental laws of nature in terms of the good, as on Aristotle's view, the primum mobile moves for love of the prime mover, itself the ultimate good. So this is actually me talking. I'm not quoting anybody here, but that's the Aristotelian view. You've got this prime mover. Um, and then on Aristotle's view of the solar system, you've got all these concentric spheres, and the Earth is at like the center of the spheres, which isn't a great place to be, by the way. It's not, it's not where you want to be. God's out here, and things get more perfect the further out you go. Um, so although we're at the center of the universe on this view, it's not an awesome place to be. Um, but if you ask the, the first thing that is moved, the primum mobile, if you ask, why is that moving? So you got to imagine it like spinning. It's not that the prime mover is going like this. <laughs> because then um, the prime mover is supposed to be the unmoved mover. And so the prime mover literally doesn't move. Otherwise, you'd want to know, well, what moves the prime mover? So the prime mover literally doesn't move. So the prime mover isn't going like this to the primum mobile. So on Aristotle's view, if you ask, why is the primum mobile moving, Aristotle says in the metaphysics that it moves as beloved. It moves the way that you're moved when you love something. So the love of something may move you towards it. It's not that thing like literally dragging you or mechanically pushing you towards it. It's rather something inside of you that moves you in its direction. So that's how the primum mobile moves. It moves for love of the prime mover. It's trying to be as much like the prime mover as it can. Um, incidentally, on Aristotle's view, that's why water moves in a cycle because it's trying to imitate the prime mover as best it can, given its limited nature. Isn't that cute? <laughs> Charming, cute, maybe strictly speaking false, but um, <laughs> maybe we could adapt it um, to what we know now, and maybe something like this is true. Maybe all of nature is moving for love of God, for love of the prime mover. Okay, that's the Aristotelian view. And so just notice when we ask about these laws of nature, why are they the way that they are, we get an explanation in terms of the prime mover um, who is himself, on Aristotle's view, the ultimate good. Or you can follow Plato and uh, explain these fundamental laws of nature in terms of the plans and intentions of a, a demiurge, a divine craftsman. And then if you want to know, well, why did the demiurge have these plans and these intentions, the explanation is in terms of the good. Okay, so this can probably be the last thing I say. <clears throat> if you want to know, well, why is the theist in a better position than the atheist? on this question. 
It's because on the atheistic view of the world, what's at the bottom here, these natural regularities, these truly fundamental natural regularities, call out for explanation, but lack them. So it's like the turtle situation. Whereas here on teleological foundationalism, what's at the bottom are truths about the good, necessary moral truths. And so what's at the foundation of all of scientific explanation on this view is something more like one plus one equals two than like I've got a turtle in a sea of chaos. This calls out for explanation. These call out for explanation. These um, necessary moral truths that are going to be the foundation of scientific explanation on this view don't call out for further explanation. They're obvious. It's like one plus one is two. Um, so let me just give you an example. If you took this divine craftsman view and you wondered, well, why are the laws the way that they are? Maybe the explanation is something like, because those are the laws that allow for um, a life-permitting universe. They allow for sentient life. And then you might ask, well, why was God interested in sentient life? Because sentient life is good. And then you could ask, well, what's so good about sentient life? But I think there, like, that's an appropriate time to stop the question. Like, then you just realize, well, sentient, think about it. Of course, sentient life is good. That's obvious. It's like one plus one is two, or like murder is wrong, or something like that. So it's a much better place to end um, the chain of explanation than what the naturalist has to settle for. Okay, um, there's a couple other possibilities. Nobody, I don't think anybody really holds them, but we can talk about them in the Q&A. It could be turtles all the way down, or it could be turtles on turtles on turtles on turtles on turtles, <laughs> and then eventually it goes back to the first turtle, and so it's sort of bootstrapping, like the turtles hold themselves up. But I, uh, I don't know. we don't need to talk about those if you don't want to. Okay, um, the argument is, and I'll just leave this displayed at the end um, so that you can tell me which premise you don't like. Premise one is um, any scientific explanation can succeed only if it involves a natural regularity. That was the first premise that I told you wasn't very controversial. The second premise is the most controversial one. An explanation can succeed, but only if it doesn't involve anything that calls out for explanation but lacks one. Okay, so I made the antecedents here both purple because we're putting necessary conditions on successful explanation. Combine those two, and what you get is, okay, in order for scientific explanation to succeed, it's got to involve a natural regularity, and this regularity better not call out for explanation while lacking one. But then the last thing I tried to convince you of was, if atheism's true, then the sensible thing to believe, the rational thing to believe, is that every natural regularity calls out for explanation, but ultimately lacks one either because it is a fundamental natural regularity or because it's sort of built on a foundation of a fundamental regularity that calls out for explanation but lacks one. Okay, so if that's true, three and four tell us that if atheism's true, no scientific explanation can succeed. That's an ambitious conclusion, it's true. but I proved it, so. <laughs> There's the proof. Um, and I guess I should just also add, because some people think, oh, you, you must just hate science. No, that's not true. I love science. Um, scientific explanations do succeed. Hasn't science been enormously successful in its prediction and explanation? For sure. Okay, but then from five and six, it follows that. Okay, last slide. Um, so we're often told that if theism's true, um, then reality's a bizarre, mysterious place, and there's this uh, old man with a beard in the sky throwing thunderbolts or something. And the world is a weird, wacky place. Um, but I think the opposite is true. I think that actually, if there's no God, if atheism's true, then reality is at bottom irredeemably mysterious. It's like 
living in that neighborhood and finding an orange on your doorstep every Wednesday, and there's literally no explanation of why. Okay, but if theism's true, then at bottom, reality is intentional, designed, goal-oriented, directed towards the good. And if that's the case, then scientific explanation is possible. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. So I actually had a question yes. um, about your bootstrapping point. Okay. So that's um, kind of one thing that, that came to me over the course of the lecture is that it seems increasingly, at least some of the like atheistic scientists on the forefront, Stephen Hawking was one, um, were increasingly starting to propose certain explanations for the universe that do involve some sort of cyclical bootstrap nature. I think he proposed a, um, like, the Big Bang ultimate and the expansion of the universe results in everything shrinking back in on itself, and then that just loops. Um, so, like, I know ancient philosophers and theologians addressed ideas about an eternal universe, but in, in this particular view, like, how would you go about trying to address something like that? Okay, so I'm just going to repeat this for the recording. So you were asking about the, a possible structure of scientific explanation where natural regularities, each natural regularity is explained by a further natural regularity. Um, and this goes on forever, but by repeating. And so eventually we get, we get back to that first natural regularity. Um, so we form a kind of loop of an explanation. And you said, um, isn't that sort of what's happening with those who have proposed a sort of big bang, big crunch, eternal cycle model of the universe, where we just get um, big bangs and big crunches over and over again? Um, or we get a kind of eternal loop? Um, that was the question. Okay, so I guess I'll just say that um, as it pertains to this paper, I was just wondering about the scientific or the explanation of natural regularities. And those examples of like big bangs and big crunches wouldn't be cases where the laws stand in this sort of um, loop explanation structure. But, I mean, it'd still be relevant because you might say, well, couldn't you have a sort of structure of explanation where the things being explained aren't the laws, but they're sort of events. Every event has an explanation, but eventually we get back to the first event and it literally repeats. Okay, so, so that was the question. Um, so I would just say, uh, not an astrophysicist, but my understanding of the Big Bang and Big Crunch is that this isn't literally returned to the first event, because we could still sensibly ask, how many times has this happened, or something like that. Yeah. In which case, oh, even if, I guess, um, true or false, Nietzsche had this sort of view of, like, reality, like, every, literally everything repeats. Um, like, literally this event will repeat. It won't be one just like this. It'll be literally this event. I guess I've also heard, in addition to um, Stephen Hawking and Friedrich Nietzsche, I think Joe Rogan has um, <laughs> proposed this, um, <laughs> this sort of view. Um, I guess he just thought, like, if the universe is infinite, then, like, literally this is happening somewhere else. He says stuff like that um, when he's on mushrooms or whatever. Um, but I guess that wouldn't be, like, an eternal recurrence kind of structure. Okay, so I'll just say this. Um, I guess I could draw it on the board if I had a, if there were markers. Okay, well, let me think about what I would draw <laughs> while you give me the marker. Um, okay, so um, here's one possibility. We get like, you know, the Big Bang, 
And then sadly, we get that crunch and we're all dead. Um, and then shortly after, I guess, we get a nut, whoa, another bang, and then another crunch. Um, but this is still like a linear timeline. Still a linear timeline. And so we can still ask, like, how many big bangs have we gotten and how many big crunches have we gotten? Um, in which case, we don't really have a, the right sort of loop structure to be a case of... Um, so, yeah, some, some energy would have to create the motion. Oh, yeah, I was, I was going to say there's two options. Like, either there really was a first bang, in which case it actually has the structure of that um, brute, um, extended brute foundationalism I was calling it. Maybe I should go back to that slide. So if, if there was an actual first Big Bang, it would actually just have this sort of structure, extended brute foundationalism, if this was the first one. But another possibility is perhaps they say, no, no, this has been going on forever, right? Um, I mean, some people believe that, um, that there was no first event, and time is infinite in the past direction, and there's always been things happening. How do you deal with entropy? How, what it, who's, who said that? How do we deal with entropy? Maybe it just gets reset with every Big Bang or something that's, like that? that's the argument that entropy is what causes the, the crunch. Basically, that's what causes the death of the universe and then the universe to restart. And well, I think they propose some sort of singularity at the yeah. crunch. It just necessitates and expansion. So basically, everything yeah. descends, you know, because of entropy, everything descends into chaos and then it has to restart. So. And then yada yada hand waving gets reset. <laughs> the, great, the great reset. Um, I think that's what it's called. <laughs> um, but yeah, if it has that sort of structure, then it's actually this infinitism structure. Um, but I think, like, if I'm recalling this interpretation of Nietzsche, and the problem with talking about Nietzsche is you're going to get contradicted by scholars of Nietzsche, but if the view really was, no, it's literally a loop. Um, it starts with a Big Bang, and then there's a crunch. And then the very same Big Bang happens again. Not one just like the first Big Bang, but literally that same Big Bang again. Um, this one I have trouble understanding. Would time have to be reset? <laughs> yeah, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah, because actually, like, I can't tell the difference between this sort of view and just this sort of view, where there's the bang, and then there's the crunch. Because on this sort of view where it's literally the same Big Bang, when you ask how many Big Bangs were there, you know, here, I'll, I'll, wait, I'll wait a bazillion years. Tell me how many Big Bangs happened. On this view, they still, as they say, it's just one. Right? It's just one. And if I ask how many times did that one Big Bang happen, they have to say just once. Yeah, otherwise, it's this, right? And it's been happening for a while. They have to say just once. And the Big Crunch happened just once. But then what's the difference between that view and a view on which there was a beginning, there was a first event, and a last event, and that's it? <laughs> like, I don't really understand the difference between these two views. The middle one's like the, the Ouroboros cycle, you know, where it's like basically uh, everything's infinite. There's always like a return, like an endless return yeah. to the beginning. But there still has to be a beginning. If you have a beginning, if you have a set point where things start over, you have to have a point where that started so you get to a point of reference. Yeah. And, well, yeah, I guess my question is, like, imagine we're watching it from the outside and we have one of those little clickers, like, at a bar, you know, when you keep track of people coming in. Um, can, could, I, could I watch this cycle and go, like, click? Happen again, click. It happened again, click. If so, then it's really just this sort of timeline. It's a linear timeline. It's just things, it's not a very interesting one because it just keeps repeating. But if this has happened a certain number of times, 
then we can say like, oh, remember? Remember 450 iterations ago? Um, yeah, that was a long time ago, man. And then we're, we're on a linear timeline, right, on that sort of view. So I think like in order for this to be different from this sort of view, they have to say, no, it, there was just one big bang and one big crunch. Hasn't happened 450 times. Nope, just once. But then again, I, I think they're just describing this uh, finite universe with, with, with like an extra step. Yeah, what? With the top one, like the top timeline, it makes, it makes more sense for you to have like a, a creator, some kind of, you know, being powerful, you know, powerful enough to create the universe because it's like, then you can just have them sitting there, you know, clicking a button going, what's yeah. again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I, I don't really believe in this, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know if we're going to have big crunches and big bangs and stuff, but I think that this is the way the timeline sort of looks. Um, but this is getting into something more like the, uh, a version of the cosmological argument where we try to argue that there must have been a first event. So this, the argument that I was giving you today is meant to be distinct from that kind of cosmological argument. Although, as you can see on the slide, like, there are points of contact. Um, but I think there are interesting arguments for the conclusion that there must have been a first event. I really like the Grim Reaper paradox. Are you familiar with that? No. I don't know if we should talk. Oh, should we talk about it? Yeah. It's kind of cool. It's not really related to this argument, but here we are, and I have markers. <laughs> and eraser. Okay. Um, yeah, so let me introduce you to that Grim Reaper paradox. Um, but if... You wanted to hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. You should invite Professor Rob Coons from the University of Texas. Okay, so um, what we're trying to prove is there was a first event. Here we are, way on the timeline. You and me, here we are. I'm convincing you of all the premises in my argument. That's what's happening right now in 2022. Okay, but if you want to try to prove that there was a first event, um, here's an argument that would help you prove that. Um, it's an argument for the conclusion that there couldn't be an infinite regress of causes. You couldn't have a chain of causes stretching back to eternity. <clears throat> okay, um, so here's the argument that would prove that. Imagine we set up a situation like this. This is zero, the year zero, and then here's the year one BC, and here's the year two BC, three BC. Okay, and then we're going to involve some fictional characters, and they're going to be Grim Reapers, um, but they're not actually going to kill anyone. And the reason... <laughs> come on. Come on. <laughs> um, and if you're wondering why are they Grim Reapers, then it's a long story that it's not, it's not worth our time. So we're, we're just going to put little characters here. I didn't even have to tell you that they're Grim Reapers. But if you wanted to look this up later, you would want to look for the Grim Reaper Paradox. Um, but these guys are actually just going to be passing notes to each other. <laughs> um, they're not going to kill anybody. But there's other versions of this case where they do kill people, if you wanted to look into it. Um, there's many variations where they actually kill people. Um, but here we're just going to have them passing notes. And so we're going to assign a Grim Reaper to every year BC. I'm not very good at drawing. Um, these don't look like Grim Reapers. Okay, and we're going to give them these instructions. The instruction is, um, on January 1st of your year, you will receive a note from the previous Grim Reaper. Um, and then your job is just to hang on to this note and pass it to your successor on New Year's Eve of the end of your year. Does that make sense? 
Okay, so they're just passing these notes. So you're going to receive a note, and you're going to pass a note to your successor. Receive it from your predecessor, hand it on to your successor. Okay, further instructions. If there is nothing written on your note, write your number on your note. So if you're the Grim Reaper for 1 BC, and you receive a note with nothing on it, you will, write, you will spend your whole year just writing that number one on the note, and then when it comes time to pass it along, uh, you'll pass it along with the number one on it. If, on the other hand, you receive a note from your predecessor that already has a number on it, then you don't get to do anything during your year. You just hold on to it, and then you pass it to your successor. Those are the only instructions. Do you understand the instructions? You're going to receive a note. If it's blank, write your number on it. Pass it on. If it already has a number on it, don't, don't change it. Just pass it on. Okay, so here's the paradox. Um, we're imagining that this goes on forever. Will there be a number written on this note when this guy gets it? I guess there is no year zero, right? This is going to be 180. The year of our Lord. One. Oh, we're talking about the system of years? <laughs> oh, I thought that was like... Guesstimation of when Jesus was born. Yeah, not conception. No, I was thinking, oh. I thought there was something about the miracle at Cana, like the wedding feast. Uh -huh. I think that might have been a different year. My understanding is, hey, I converted to Catholicism uh, relatively recently, 10 years ago. Um, but I thought there was some uh, ancient Jewish tradition or pseudo-prophecy that a very important person would be born and would be conceived and die on the same day. Is that right? And so they knew what day Jesus died, and they were like, I bet um, this was that very important person, so I bet he was conceived on the same day, March 21st. Also the day Frodo successfully got that ring into Mordor. Yep, March 25th. Um, and so that's how I guess we came up with December 25th, because that was nine months later. Okay. Going on a lot of tangents today, my bad. Um, but I think that's how it happened. Okay, anyway. Will there be a number written on this piece of paper? Well, let's say, could it be no? Well, that would require that this guy received it blank and passed it on blank. But he would never do that. That would break the rules. Don't leave. This is very cool. Just kidding. You can leave if you need to. But we're almost there, and this is very cool. We're about to prove philosophically that there was a first event, which is pretty cool. Um, so there will be a number written on this. Which number will be written on it? Could it be one? No, that would require that the year 1 BC guy got a blank piece of paper from year 2. But that would have never happened, because if this guy had received a blank piece of paper, he would have written 2 on it. So it can't be 1. It would have had to have at least been 2. Could it have been 2? Well, no, that would require that year 2 guy got a blank piece of paper from year 3 guy, and that would have never happened. It would have at least been 3. Could it have been 3? Could it have been 3? Nope. And you can see how you can just keep doing this. And basically what we're asking, here's, here's the number that will be written on this piece of paper, the largest number. The largest number will be written on this piece of paper. Um, but there is no largest number. So that's the paradox. There must be something written on this piece of paper, but there is no number that could be written on this piece of paper. There must be a number on the piece of paper. That's one half of the contradiction. There must be a number written on this piece of paper, because this guy would have at least written one on it. But there can't be any number written on the piece of paper. Conclusion, you can't have an infinite regress of causes like this. This would be fine if there had just been a first Grim Reaper, because then his number would be on it. 
But if it's an infinite regress, we get this contradiction. So infinite regresses of causes are impossible. So there must have been a first event. Isn't that cool? Tell your physicist friends. We just solved it for them. And we didn't even have to do any experiments, and it was very cheap. <laughs> um, but also, if you, you might ask, when did God begin to exist? And the answer is God never began to exist. So God spent an eternity of time not changing, just chilling. Um, and then there was a first event. And it was something like, let there be light. Were you going to say that? I was going to play devil's advocate later. Um, and uh, be like, well, how do you explain, you know, when people ask, like, uh, well, who made God? Yeah. Like that. Nah, he was always around. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Is pre-existence a problem in this view? Pre-existence of God? God's pre-existing the first change? Right, because you're, I mean, that's a brute fact that we're asserting. I mean, we can come to the theological explanation or some of Aquinas' explanation of, like, um, or even, I guess, uh, Dr. Fazer has arguments about contingency. Um, but it would seem that that's just an asserted brute fact. God's existence? Yeah. Pre-existent and has yeah. no cause and he's just around. I'm going to reply and then we'll stop. <laughs> okay, so Chandler asked, um, <clears throat> well, isn't God's existence going to be a brute fact? In which case... Doesn't this teleological foundationalism itself involve something mysterious down here? So it's true, I did try to get away with a little something. I did say that <laughs> down here in the explanations, I just cited the necessary moral truths. Um, and if you're into that platonic view where we've got a divine craftsman who creates the world, um, then at least the reasons that God does what he does will not require further explanation. They will not call out for explanation. But we still need that agent. We need God to be there to do it, to like create the world. Um, and we don't want that. We don't want God's existence to be the sort of thing that calls out for further explanation but lacks explanation because then we wouldn't be in a better position than our naturalist friends. Um, so I will just say that um, it has long been a tradition, at least in the Christian tradition, to think that um, God is a necessary being whose existence does not depend on anything else. Um, and so God is among the things that, whose existence doesn't have any further explanation and doesn't call out for explanation. It's like, um, so maybe that's not totally satisfying to you, so let me just say a couple other things to try to make it a little more satisfying. Um, I think numbers exist, and I think there's infinitely many of them, but if you ask me, like, what caused them or where did they come from, I don't think they're the sorts of things that could come from anywhere. I don't think even God could make a number. They're not the right sorts of things to be made. Like, do you like sculpt? What'd you say? They just are. Yeah, they just are, and always have been, and couldn't have failed to be. Okay, so when you think about that, and you realize like, oh yeah, now when I think about it, yeah, they, they couldn't have come from anywhere. They're not made out of anything. Um, so I guess, yeah, they don't really require further explanation. They just have to exist. The fact that God is God necessarily implies that he isn't made. Yeah. Yeah, so God is sort of similar to a number in this respect, like not made out of anything. Um, could God be a number? <laughs> no. <laughs> Question was, could God be a number? Um, I'm just going to say no. Um, no. No, if only because like numbers can't do anything, can't interact, and God certainly has interacted with us. 
numbers can't become incarnate and God God did. Something something good with the numerology. Okay. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Um, so again, that may not be totally satisfying to you, but I'll just say this. This argument at least gives you a reason to think that in order for scientific explanation to succeed, there must be something like that at the foundation. Necessary moral truths, an agent whose existence doesn't call out for further explanation. So that might be enough justification to believe in such a thing. Um, and I, I guess I'll also just make this final distinction, then I'll stop talking. There's a difference between um, having reason to believe that something exists and the thing's existence being grounded in or dependent upon something else. So he, with the case of numbers, you can see that distinction pretty easily. Like, there, I guess pi is not a number that occurs to a lot of people naturally, but we, we get reason to believe that it, ex that it exists. So you have justification to believe that pi exists. But that doesn't mean that like pi was made or that it depends for it exist its existence on anything else. You have justification to believe that it exists, but that doesn't mean that its existence is explained by something deeper. I think the same thing goes with God. Arguments like this could give you justification for believing that there must be um, an agent whose existence doesn't call out for further explanation. But that's different from saying that that agent does have further explanation. I don't think that he would. Thank you again for your attention.